Well, we're just so excited of what God is doing at our North Aurora campus. And as we begin our time, I just want to say thank you to those of you that have partnered with us in this way, either financially or just in prayer, as we prepare for what God is going to do at that campus. Just so excited for that time. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Joe Scavato. I'm one of the pastors here. And as we uh, take this time to open up God's Word, let's just take a moment right now and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're just uh, so thankful for this time. We're thankful for what you're doing in the life of our church and in each one of our lives. Um, God, as we take time now to uh, open up your word and ask ourselves what you have for us today, would you just speak to us? Would you speak your truth uh, from your word in this time? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, back when I was in college, uh, one of the classes that had one of the biggest impacts on my life was theology. I came into college knowing that God had called me to ministry, but I didn't know much else. And uh, I was really excited to kind of dive into this subject and discover the difference between true doctrine, between what was revealed to us from Christ and from his word, and false beliefs, or what we would call heresy. And my theology professor, Dr. Bounds, was this incredibly smart man who knew more about this subject than I could ever hope to, and yet he was this incredible teacher who also had a way of being loving and kind and encouraging his students as he taught us some of these difficult subjects. One of my favorite things about Dr. Bounds' class is that he would allow his students to disagree with him. As we explored things like the end times, things like baptism, he would, he would show us different viewpoints and ask us what we believed. It's a rare thing in school to be able to disagree with your teacher. However, there came times in our class where one of us would fall outside of historic Christian doctrine a little bit too much, and, and when that would happen, he would look at you, and he, he would have this big smile on his face, and, and you could tell he was just loving this conversation and loving that his students were engaging in God's Word. And he would look at you, and he would smile, and he would say, I know what you're trying to say, but you're being a heretic right now. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been called a heretic, but it is jarring. It is not something that you typically uh, typically strive for. In fact, at some points in history, being a heretic would get you killed. And yet there was something so loving and so kind that you almost wanted to be called one. It was a strange feeling, and I miss him a lot. Today I'm just so excited to uh, spend some time with you today as we continue our series in 2 Peter, the series that we've been calling Faith That Finishes. This letter that Peter wrote shortly before his death, and and the passage that we're going to be reading today reminded me immediately of my time in theology class. You might remember if you've been tracking with us these past several weeks that we've seen Peter teach that in Jesus we have everything that we need, everything for life and for godliness, and that we must remind ourselves, that we must remember what we know to be true, remember what we have been taught, remember what has been revealed to us about Jesus. And today, as we go through chapter 2 of this letter, we're going to see the reason why. Because in the early church, just as in my theology class, and, and even in our church of, the, of the, the modern church today, that there are those who are offering something different— false teachers, those who he calls heretics. And while Peter's words might have some similarities to my professors, his tone does not. I'm going to warn you ahead of time that some of the words that we're going to be reading today might make us feel a little uncomfortable. 
To be honest, many of us would rather skip over some of the teachings, some of the things that we're going to be reading. There are hard truths that we're going to be discussing today, and yet that is why it is so important that we explore the whole Word of God. That we don't just skip over and pick and choose what makes us feel good in a certain time in our lives, but that we ask ourselves, what does God have for us even in a passage like this? And so today what I want to do is walk us through three aspects or three marks of a false teacher. And we're going to see where God will lead us today. So the first mark, the, thir- the first aspect that I want to talk about is different sources, having different sources. I want to read for you just the first three verses in Second Peter chapter 2. It says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. There it is. Even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter starts here, and he he says that at their core, these false teachers have a different source of truth. I wonder if you've ever believed something to be true only to find out that you are incorrect, or if there's ever been maybe a gap in your knowledge. For example, my wife Judy was 23 years old when she discovered that pickles were actually cucumbers. She was going through her whole life thinking that these two foods looked really similar, but were not the same. I fell for a classic one where my brother told me that if I ate a watermelon seed, then watermelons would grow in my stomach. And I believed that for far longer than I'm willing to admit today. I wonder if growing up, if you had something like that, maybe a gap in your knowledge. I wonder if you've ever believed, like some do, that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. Or that if you dig a hole deep enough, you could actually reach China. Or maybe you believe, like some do, that having a credit card is like having free money. It's a painful lesson to to learn. We've all had gaps, right? We've all had things that we've believed to be true because we've had a different source of truth. Whether, like me, it was a a mean older sibling who likes pranking his younger brother, or, or maybe something you read, or in these days, probably something you see on the internet. And Peter is saying here that this is the first way to identify false teaching, by looking at the source. He starts in verse 1 by acknowledging that these false teachers are present, that they are among you. That in our world, wherever truth is proclaimed, that we should not be surprised when there are those who offer deception. That there will always be people that take the truth and twist it and turn it and wrap it into something that it is not. This isn't new. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent says, did God actually say that? You should not be surprised when there are false teachers. And Peter is saying that this is happening in your midst, that there are those that are doing this not with boldness but secretly, and they twist the message of the gospel in a way that we see in verse 2 that many will follow them, that there is something within the church. And, And if we can be honest today, maybe even something within you and me that can be drawn in by this counterfeit Christianity. So Peter is saying, this is how you identify a false teacher. Verse 1, they deny their master. Now think about that phrase, they deny their master, and think about who is writing it. This is Peter. 
Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Peter, who constantly misunderstood the message of the gospel. Peter, who was given grace and forgiveness, who God used in incredible ways, oftentimes despite himself. And so Peter is saying, take it from me. This is so easy to fall into. It can sneak up on you, and and you have to look at their message, look at the source of their faith, look at what they proclaim and what they believe about Jesus, and compare it to what you see in the Jesus of the gospel. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we saw Peter teach this, that, that his power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us everything that we need. And one of the ways that you know that you are hearing or believing a counterfeit Christianity is if you experience what I call a math equation faith. Math equation faith, where, where the message of the gospel is Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus, or even Jesus minus. So, so Jesus plus health and wealth, what we call the prosperity gospel. Where if I'm not healthy and if I'm not wealthy, then there must be something wrong with me, because that's what God wants. That's what is part of the Christian life. Or for others, it's maybe Jesus plus doing enough good deeds, so I don't feel guilty, where I'm in effect earning my salvation, the works-based gospel. Or even for some, it's, <clears throat> it's Jesus plus your political affiliation, where I've heard people on both sides of the aisle say that if you don't vote for this candidate or, or that party, then you don't know Christ, the political gospel. Or for some, it's Jesus minus. Jesus minus the command to forgive the person that wronged me, as I have been forgiven. Jesus minus a a life of morality, what we see in verse 2, pursuing sensuality, which translates to any human desire. Jesus minus self-denial, minus picking up my cross, minus following him. Peter's saying there is no room for this math equation faith in the kingdom of God. Jesus is too big to add to. He's too important to subtract from. But here's where this message is going to maybe stretch us and challenge us a little bit. See, I think it's easy for many of us, especially those of us that have been following Jesus for a while, to see the false teachers out there. We see that, we know that, we, we know that it is wrong. And yet what Peter is saying is that it's not simply enough to identify those out there that we have been called to look in here, to look in my own heart, to my own life, my own faith, and see if there is anything that I am tempted to add or subtract from the gospel. If my faith is about Jesus plus my loved ones staying healthy, if my faith is about Jesus plus having financial stability, if my faith is about Jesus minus forgiving the person that wronged me or, or minus that one part of my life that I like to hold on to myself. Peter is saying, trust me, this is so easy to do, and so you have to actively and consistently hold on to the Jesus of the gospel. Hold on to the way of truth. We see that phrase, way of truth, in verse 2, and it's the same phrase that we'll see in John chapter 14, verse 6. This is Jesus talking. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells us the same thing that Peter does here. 
The same words that he would give to those of us that might struggle with this math equation faith. To remain focused on the true gospel Jesus that has been revealed to us in his word. To take time, even right now, to reflect on whether there is something that you are tempted to add or subtract from your Savior. And then for my prayer to be to grow in the knowledge of him, that he would remove those things to where I can truly say that Jesus plus nothing is everything. This is the source of our faith. That brings us to the second part of this section of Peter's letter, which I'm calling a different character. Different character. Um, One of my go-to stress relievers during this COVID season has been taking my dog, Wrigley, on a walk. I think I brought a picture. That's Wrigley. Isn't he cute? And uh, I don't know if I've shared a Wrigley story here at this campus before. Uh, If not, Wrigley is our dog that we treat like a child, and we love him very much, and uh, he's very sweet. And so normally I take Wrigley on a walk every afternoon, and then I also take him out at night before bed. And, And Wrigley loves going on walks more than I have ever loved anything. He loves them so much. He gets excited every time. We take the same route every time, and he just doesn't care. He loves life so much. It's great. And a few months ago, I was taking him out on a walk at at night, and it was pretty dark outside. And as we were walking, all of a sudden, he just kind of froze. Like, we were walking this way, and all of a sudden, he just turned, and he froze. And I could tell immediately that he had sensed something, that there was something in the distance that I couldn't see. And he was frozen, and it, out of nowhere, I just heard this really deep and aggressive and honestly kind of scary noise. Like, it was this growl that I had never heard before. And his hair went up, and his head got low, and it was almost like this different animal that I had never met before had joined our family. His instincts had kicked in, and he was ready for anything. And we quickly went back inside, because Wrigley's dad is not as brave as he is. I thought of Wrigley when I saw how Peter described these false teachers. Let me read the next several verses in this chapter, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction— making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, blaspheming glorious ones, what he's saying there is basically they're denying the power of demons, of of demonic spirits, something that we'll see in verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. 
They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Whew. Everyone feeling uplifted and encouraged? Man, arrogant. Blots and blemishes, accursed children. You can feel Peter's emotion as he writes. Anger and, and sadness and frustration. And honestly, it can be hard to read. He describes these teachers as creatures of instinct that, just like my dog, do what comes naturally without thinking. Every desire that comes into their heart, their heart they follow. Later in this chapter, he'll even describe them as dogs that return to their own vomit, which I have a Wrigley story for that I will not be sharing. Don't worry. It feels like Peter could be describing much of what our culture celebrates today. A life that says, whatever needs, whatever wants, whatever desires you feel like are owed to you, go and pursue them. You deserve whatever it is that you want. This is the narrative that many in our day believe. And again, it's a reminder that this is not new. None of this is new. This has been going on since well before the church was born. And Peter is saying that one of the ways to identify a false teacher is to look at their character. Look at the fruit that they bear. Think back to chapter 1, if you were with us a few weeks ago, to the list of attributes that Peter gave us. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. How different is this from what fruit these teachers are bearing? Fruit of arrogance and deception and sin. A while back, I saw a pastor uh, ask a question directed towards other pastors, and, and I'll paraphrase, but basically he said, he asked a, a pastor, if someone followed you, not just what you taught, but if they had a front row seat to your life for a year, or three years, or, or, or five years, how much closer would they be to Jesus? Now, of course, no one is perfect, including pastors, or especially pastors, if you ask my wife. But over time, with God's grace and God's Spirit moving and working in us, if we truly know Jesus and we truly know the gospel, then it should change the fruit that we bear. Away from arrogance and towards humility. Away from self-indulgence and towards self-denial. Away from sin and towards the one who paid for it. It's something to consider for you and for me. If someone simply followed you and did the things that you did for a year, or three years, or, or five years, in what ways would they grow in virtue, in steadfastness, in brotherly affection, in love? In the earlier part of this section, Peter gives these examples of God's justice and mercy. His justice towards the fallen angels in the ancient world, and yet his mercy towards Noah. His justice towards Sodom and Gomorrah and his mercy towards Lot. Now, we don't have time to dig into each of those examples, but the, the overall lesson, I think, is pretty clear for us. In fact, he says it in verse 9, that God knows how to rescue the godly, and he knows how to judge the ungodly. But hidden in this section is something so powerful and so important, especially if you are here today and you are struggling to figure out how to respond to a world that is filled with false teachers and broken ideologies and things that you know lead to godlessness. We see these ideas all around us. We see them on TV and on social media and even sometimes taught in schools. And Peter, through the example of Lot, gives us, I think, the correct 
response, or maybe even a better way to phrase that is the correct posture to have. In verse 7, we see that righteous Lot, who if you know the story of Lot, you know that Lot was not perfect, far from it. And yet he is declared righteous, and, and so righteous Lot encountered this brokenness and this sin, and how did he respond? He was greatly distressed because of their conduct. Now, I think for someone that wants to follow Jesus well in the world that we live in, there are two mistakes that we must avoid falling into. Two mistakes when it comes to these false teachings. Number one, we must avoid getting swept up in the teachings of the world. Maybe you've seen this or or experienced this or or heard this of well-meaning people who care about others and want the best for others, and yet they have allowed the culture to impact their theology more than their theology impacting the culture. There are even churches, even pastors that do this, that preach what people want to hear rather than what God wants to say. And yet if the good news is the good news, then there is nothing better that we could be proclaiming, both in church and in the world. The second mistake, though, is that where I think some of us might be struggling today. I told you that this was going to stretch us, but the second mistake, I think, where instead of getting swept up in the world, we find our hearts being hardened to it, where we find ourselves angry or even bitter or even tempted to withdraw from a world that just seems so lost. Sometimes, if we're being completely honest, it can be easy to even become judgmental or, or feel superior to others. And it's easy to forget that the very people that are teaching those false things, that are living that lifestyle that we don't agree with, that are following these things that we know lead to brokenness, are people that God created and loves and wants the best for. Where many of them might even be the people that Jesus spends the most time with. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Instead of these two mistakes, let us follow what we see here, this third option, not abandoning the truth of the gospel, holding on to what we know to be true, and yet also not abandoning the love and the care for those that are lost. Instead, let us follow this third way. Let our hearts break for what breaks God's heart. Let us grieve, let us be distressed, let us pray over this sinful way and love people in a way that points them to truth. This is what we are called to, to follow the example of Jesus, to walk this narrow road of love and of truth. And finally, we see this third aspect of these false teachers, different promises, different promises. Let me read the last handful of verses of this chapter. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. 
What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after watching herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So, Peter has walked us through this message. He said that false teachers exist, and they have this different message, this different source of truth. It leads to this different lifestyle or a different character. And then here he shows us a different ending and a different promise. He says something that for many of us might be difficult to read and to hear, that it would be better to never hear the message of the gospel than to hear it and turn away from it. Now, this may be me reading into this a little bit, but you can almost feel the emotions of Peter as he writes, not just anger, but but sadness and grief. I wonder if Peter had a specific person or people in mind who knew Jesus and yet turned away from him, who did not understand why he came. Maybe even someone like Judas, the betrayer of Christ. It's far worse to hear about Jesus and turn away. Why is that? Because when you turn away from Jesus, it's because you think you know who he is, and yet you do not understand what he has to offer you. In verse 17, he describes his teachers as waterless springs, making promises for something that they cannot ever give. Picture going on a a long walk or a long run, or, or maybe even being in the desert and being so thirsty and in need of water and finding an oasis and yet it being empty with nothing to give there. We see this in the world all the time. Just turn on the TV and watch a commercial. You'll, you'll see, you know, buy this product, take this pill, get this thing, and everything will be better. Everything will be different for you. And Peter is saying, this is what these false teachers are doing. They are promising you freedom. They are promising you the perfect life. They're promising you the American dream. And yet all of those things simply lead to enslavement, to what you wanted. The truth about life is that as much as we as Americans value freedom, we have been created to worship and to serve something. And I can only speak to my own life, but I have found that there are few worse masters than myself. In John chapter 4, we see the alternative that Jesus offers. You might remember this story where Jesus is baptizing and teaching and performing miracles, and as he went around, he comes upon a woman at a well in Samaria. Now, if you remember your Bible history, you know that Samaritans and Jews did not get along. They didn't like each other. And so this is pretty much the least likely pairing that you could think of. A Jewish man, a a rabbi, and a Samaritan woman who we find out has been living in a life of sin and sexual immorality. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and they start talking. And and you can read the story. John chapter 4, Jesus walks this narrow road that we talked about where he doesn't condone her sinful ways. He doesn't say, you know, everything's okay, just do whatever you want. And yet he doesn't allow her sin to keep him from loving her. What does he do? Just as she offers him water, Jesus offers her something far better. This is John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Living water that becomes eternal life. This is what Jesus promises to her. And it changes her life forever. I wonder today if you've been living and believing the promises of the world. 
The promise that simply following your heart will lead to fulfillment. The promise that being a good enough person will earn you eternal life. The promise that having enough money, enough success, enough wealth or health or whatever it is will lead to happiness. All of these waterless springs, unable to give you what they offer you. There's so many false promises out there. It was true in the first century, and it's true for us today. And that's why it matters why we talk about these false teachers, even when it can make us feel uncomfortable. Because Jesus has a promise as well. And it's offered to even those who we might say are farthest from him. A promise of living water, of eternal life. And the beauty of the gospel is that he has made the way to fulfill that promise. Let us live in that truth and live in that promise that we have been given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now and we're thankful for your word, even the not-so-fun parts. God, I pray for each one of us now that we would reflect on your word, that we would reflect on whether there's something that we've tried to add to your gospel whether we've fallen into the ways of the world, and would you direct us instead towards the promise that you have given to your eternal life that you offer to us. We love you so much, and we pray this in your name. Amen.